Welcome to the History Trust Summer Podcast Series. This podcast is based on the original recording from our Talking History program. You can read more about the podcast, its content and speaker in the show notes via your preferred podcast platform. Talking History was created on Ghana land and the History Trust acknowledges the First Nations peoples of South Australia, whose connection to country and living cultures began in time immemorial and continues to the present. Since the earliest 1900s, people had tried to launch an Australian-built car. Every attempt had failed, and here at last, General Motors Holdings had succeeded with this very clever recipe of a car not too small, not too large like the popular Americans, but right in the middle of an empty market spot. Some of you who are joining us tonight might be complete Holden aficionados. I noticed someone said they've got a swathe of them in their garage. And you think that Holden's the greatest thing that's ever happened to Australia and you just want to hear us rave about the company. And some of you might be coming along from a broader historical point of view and wanting to find out why the history of Holden is so important. Someone who can address both of those points particularly well is Don Loeffler. He's undoubtedly one of the foremost authorities on early Holdens in particular. So I'm going to throw to Don now. Don, you can tell us from the very origins of Holden about how this company came to be such a household name in Australia. Well, Mick, it had very humble beginnings because in 1859, James Alexander Holden set up a humble leather goods business in the Beehive Corner building and prospered so greatly that he moved from one premises to another, finally ended up in Grenfell Street. His son, Henry, went into partnership with Adolf Frost, and so their firm was called Holden and Frost, and you can see what they were doing, trimming, making harnesses, everything for the horse and buggy era. And they then prospered so much that they began to make a few custom bodies for cars. Then in 1917, they really did branch out. And while this Grenfell Street firm still went on as Holden and Frost, their other company, Holden's Motor Body Builders, started in King William Street South, number 400. That prospered so much, can you believe this, that by 1922, they'd upgrown the site, which was huge. And in 1923, they managed to secure this huge triangle of land at Woodville, where they set up their bodybuilding plant. Theoretically, it was only for General Motors bodies, but in practice, they did other makes as well. In 1944, General Motors agreed that General Motors Holdings here could produce a local car. I reckon the hero is Arthur Wigan, the supply manager, because he had to manage to get 304 component suppliers to agree to produce components for the Holden car. And it was against enormous difficulties. There were shortages of iron and steel, coke, 
coal for their furnace, skilled labour, building materials. That was everything they needed to expand their factories to put this extra car into production. That they managed to achieve this was a tremendous achievement. That car was completed under top secret conditions. Nobody was to know anything about it outside of the company apart from its name. So this is October the 1st. Now, the company was hard up against it because they knew that on November the 29th, Prime Minister Chifley was coming down to unveil the car to the public. This car was the first of 10 that they ran off the line just to test how good the line was and make the final adjustments. So between October the 1st and the end of October, they tested these 10 cars day and night. They decided to have a ceremonial drive off the line at the end of October where they've got a whole line of holders available, Harold Bettle and the chief engineer, Russell Begg, driving that number one car, the one you see in Birdwood, off the line. That car was never sold to the public. The other nine cars were eventually, but luckily this one has been kept. And I think the apocryphal tale possibly, Don, is that I always say it's very hard to know that you're making history when you're making it. You'd think a company that's launching the very first ever Australian, fully Australian built vehicle for mass production in 1948, just after the war, momentous occasion, big ceremony, the prime minister coming along. You'd think they would have realised that they were making history, but no. Apparently, this very car, the number one Holden off the line, was then parked in Holden's design studio. And when their staff members were working overtime, supposedly they needed a place to crash and they slept in the back seat. Oh, they did. I've spoken to one of the uh, prototype drivers who did just that and said, oh, it had lovely seats because that car wasn't trimmed in leather. It was trimmed in cloth. He loved to just have a nap in there in between the test periods. Now, Mick, we've got to make it clear to people that there's no mystery about that car having body six. Some people get terribly uptight about it. They want to call it number six. Well, it's not. It's body six. Body is not a car. They took no notice of body number when they were assembling those first 10 cars. Remember that seven of them were black, one was dark blue, one was dark grey, and this one was Gawler cream. So in a dark factory, this is obviously the, the most photogenic. That may not be why it came first off the line, but for whatever reason, it did. Don mentioned how difficult it was to coordinate the manufacture of uh, a vehicle for the very first time in this way in Australia. In the first year, they only managed to build just over 300 of them from memory. By the following year, they had already started building, towards the end of it, they were building 600 of them a day. They were very cleverly branded, I think, those early Holdens, as Australia's own car. It was certainly the case with the 48215, and then it was a very much a tagline with the FJ, which is the following series, and a car that's remembered even more fondly in Australian collective memory. Fast forward to 1961. They're selling 112,377 cars in the one year. So I think it's fair to say that the take-up of Holden is 
pretty amazing. Effectively, they're a success story and a completely upwards trajectory in those first 20 years or so. In fact, 46.2% of registrations of new passenger cars in Australia in 1961 are EK Holdens. That means almost one in every two cars sold in that year was that one model of car. As Don said, they had found that niche in the market, that perfectly untapped space that everyone wanted. And it was effectively the perfect family car at the time. Holden is effectively growing and growing and growing. Once again, they were outgrowing factories in Adelaide almost faster than they could move in. And Woodville operations continued all the way up until the very late 80s, I think. It's a real period of optimism. It's the period of the famous jingle, or in fact, that came in 1975, but football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars. Holden, in some way, has become one of the most Australian names and concepts around. In 1964, they opened the design studio. In this time is when they start producing these fantastic prototypes. The Hurricane was not built ever to go to market. They didn't think that there would be too much of an uptake of a very expensive to build, very tech heavy race car. And they were probably right. We have one person in the entire National Motor Museum who can fit into the cockpit of this vehicle when that roof comes down. It's really cozy in there. It was intended a little bit to show off. They landed on a really good design, a little bit to show what their design studio could do. 1964, they've only just launched the studio, which was basically where they developed the models that were to come. They were upskilling, they were showing off, but they were also teaching their staff, saying, you know, have free reign and go and see what you can build. And some of those technologies then filtered down to the vehicles that do make it to market. So this vehicle in particular, for example, has a very contentious GPS system in it. Hardly anyone believes that it ever worked. Not many people even believe that they tried to actually develop it, but it was a good concept. It was meant to work on the magnets that are placed in the roads that sort of activate the traffic lights. That a wayfinding system in 1969 was pretty groundbreaking. What does work in it is the reverse camera. We used it when we parked the vehicle into this exact spot in the museum. It was hugely technologically advanced, but not intended for production. What was intended for production was the vehicle that's next to it in our exhibition, which is the Holden Tirana GTRX. So this is 1970, so it's just one year later. And originally the vehicle wasn't this lovely pearlescent white color. It was a sort of a steely gray, but still a very stunning vehicle. And they thought it was going to make it to production so much that they actually, they even made sales brochures for it. The Tirana is a model of Holden that was launched a little bit earlier in the 60s, and it had already had its own muscle car versions or performance versions. So the GTRX was meant to be the ultimate Holden supercar, but it was ultimately considered not to be a financially viable product. Ultimately, I think what this shows, this 1960s, 70s era, is just a whole lot of optimism. You don't try your hand at vehicles and develop things that you don't even think are ever going to make it to sale without having, I guess, a, a, an idea that your company is going places. And that was very much rooted in how they were performing at the time. From the 1960s and 70s are when many of those iconic models came. So the Sandman, the Monaro, the Kingswood, these are all launched in that period. In this era, Holden is certainly performing admirably well, but it's destined to end. The late 70s is when repeated oil crises hit the world. People are starting to worry a little bit about the consumption because obviously these vehicles had mostly six or eight cylinder engines that didn't really 
focus very much on fuel efficiency and they're becoming expensive to run. There's also a huge increase in acceptance in Australia of Japanese built cars in particular. So I was watching just the other day a promotional video for the XU1 Tirana where they're saying it almost looks like a Datsun, almost saying it's almost as good as those Japanese designs. The force of the Japanese competitors is really something to be reckoned with for Holden. And that's why I think you don't see any products of the design studio that come from that era. They were still producing, they were doing things, but what they were doing was facelifting, is what it's called technically, facelifting their current models so that the public would still continue to buy them without having to spend huge amounts of money on the development of brand new vehicles. And the 1980s were not a particularly happy period for Holden. So between 1970 and 1998, there's no real product to speak of from that Holden Design Studio. But when they did restart, then you see that there's quite a long list of them. So 1998 is the Monaro, or the prototype was named Matilda. It had a topless counterpart called Marilyn, which I think is the most elegant of all the vehicles in this collection. And then a whole series of other prototypes. So this one is the Tirana, or a future series of Tirana, the TT36, 2004, HR to Colton Racing Team version of the Monaro, which I think is from 2002. Sorry, I might get my dates wrong. The SSX, which is a type of hatchback Commodore almost. The Utester, once again, we're, we're in the early 2000s. So the Utester is a bit of a cabrio ute thing. Later series of Sandman, and then onto the very famous Effigy 2005, and ending with a Coupe 60 in 2008. So we've got nine vehicles all in the space of about 10 years. And that's because in that period, the late 90s and early 2000s, Holden had once again established itself as the most profitable global division of General Motors. And I actually moved to Australia from Italy in 2001. It would not have surprised me if someone told me that a Holden Commodore is standard issue for an Australian family. They were absolutely ubiquitous in 2001. And that was, I think, a slow build. It was a model that lasted all the way through to the early 2000s when I'm talking about it with the DT or DS. I guess that focus on the large family car is certainly one of the main factors that ultimately contributed to the end of Holden production as we know it. But Don, I know you're a big admirer of the Effigy. As an FJ owner yourself, what can you tell us about the prototype? Well, I, I think Richard Palazzo, the designer, did a brilliant job because there are so many FJ cues in the car. And that car, by the way, was taken to the United States and caused a huge sensation there. To use a common expression, it knocked their socks off. I think um, on its way back from that trip, heard it from the designer himself, Richard Falazzo, the, the father of the effigy, that a billionaire in Saudi Arabia offered Holden. He started bidding on it, basically, and he kept saying, no, 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 it's not for sale. And I think he got all the way up to 20 million US dollars uh, <laughs> for a vehicle that they estimated cost them about 1.2 million to build. <laughs> and they still said, no, 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 it's not for sale. So we're, we're pretty lucky to have it in the National Motor Museum. But Don, you had some thoughts about the company's efforts to collect and preserve these vehicles. Well, let's go back a little bit further. The 500,000 Holden, which is an FC wagon, the 1 millionth, the 2 millionth and the 3 millionth cars were all presented to the Australian Inland Mission. They were gifted. Now, I'm just thinking they're going to Central Australia, they're going to Outback Queensland, and they get these really smart cars. Now, what fascinates me, Mick, is 
that Holden's managed to get the one millionth and two millionth back. Now, I do not know the story behind that. And I'd love to know because those cars would have had a fairly rough time. I'm sure they were driven over unsealed roads a great deal. And it's only the three millionth that met a sad fate, you know, and was trashed. But these other two, of course, are magnificently restored. And I think all credit to Holden's to have done that. Whereas I think the later big round number cars were kept. Yeah, you're right. These later ones, I think possibly including the VC Commodore there, uh, which is my favourite paintwork in the entire museum, the two-tone gold with a pinstripe. Is it just Oh, Mick, that's the the one that Lawrence Hartnett drove off the line, isn't it? Yes. Uh, The so-called father of the Holden car fell out with Holden's over the styling. We've got to just remember that the recipe, so to speak, for the Holden was his. It was his idea to have this car in between, the middle-sized car. I just think it's tragic that he threw up his career just because he couldn't get his way with the styling. So he was estranged from the company, but they mended bridges, and when the four millionth came off the line, it was nice symbolism that they allowed him to drive that off the line. I went to the Holden factory at Elizabeth many times before it closed. You just felt it from the moment you walked in. Everyone who talked to you, there was this huge sense of pride around what they did. You know, I'm not going to say it was all roses there. I'm sure there were people who had all sorts of problems. But one thing they were, I think, pretty assured of is that the product that they were building was was very high quality. And so that emphasis on their heritage was always very obvious. I thought I should just make some quick mentions about this vehicle, which is the last Holden off the line. Historians always get criticised if they don't get into the political side of things. And I'm certainly not one to shy away from that. And, you know, it is a very contentious argument. Why did manufacturing of motor vehicles end in Australia? Why did Holden have to pull out? I think it's all too fresh for us to really know. And it it is quite a nuanced argument and it does have its roots. Like I said, the 1980s were already a bit of a dark period for Holden. And there are a variety of factors. Undoubtedly, there is that falling protection that the industry had, like I mentioned earlier, in the 1920s, there were huge tariffs and strong import bans on foreign-built vehicles. The government did everything they could to make sure that the industry could thrive in Australia to the detriment of foreign-built vehicles. There was, of course, increased competition, and the Japanese cars definitely took Australia by storm. I think already by the time I arrived in 2001 in Australia, the Commodore was still leading sales, but not for long, and the Corolla was soon overtaken. There's the fact that Holden ultimately is a reasonably small part of a large global picture, which is General Motors, and General Motors themselves went bankrupt in 2009. They were doing what was best for them as a global unit. And ultimately, I think it's fair to say that the Australian buying public didn't love the foreign-built Holdens in the same way that they love the Kingswoods and the Monaros and the Commodores. And then, you know, there's my battle horse, SUVs. SUVs have taken Australia by storm and Holden didn't really have that same sort of SUV range that some of its competitors did. That's not where they put all their chips. But I think with all these debates, people often forget what's a big part of this picture in front of us. This is the last car, but these are all the people that were involved in making that last car. All the people at Holden and the people side of the story is often forgotten in all those discussions. And that's part of the reason that we at the National Motor Museum have recently opened a new exhibition called Holden and Me. And it's collecting 100 oral histories of workers who worked at the Holden factories. I have a Holden family history. My mother worked there in her holidays when she was a university student and her uncle and auntie worked there. My great uncle was a foreman. His wife worked in maintenance as well. 
it's not an uncommon story. So many of us have, you know, go one or two degrees of separation. We have a holding story. And if we don't have one of the people who worked at the factories, we have one of owning a holding. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This is just one of the many stories of South Australia's history from the past, unfolding today and now preserved for the future. To read the show notes about this podcast or to access the original recording, search Talking History in your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to subscribe to hear the latest episodes. You can also visit history.sa.gov.au to learn more about the History Trust, our collections, public programs and museums, and how we are giving the past a future now.